Hello, everyone. This is Neil Piper, Executive Director at the Presidential Precinct. Today, I'm excited to welcome you to a special season of our Global Founders podcast. Over the next few weeks, we're sharing conversations with Mandela Washington Fellows at the Presidential Precinct. Alongside co-hosts Will Amaker and Benjamin Hotchner and faculty from across the precinct's five partner sites, Mandela Washington Fellows are leading conversations around the world's most pressing challenges, including human rights and justice, governance and democratic development, access to education, and more. This week, we sit down with two individuals championing the fight for transparency and reconciliation in the face of egregious historic injustices. Embrima Sunko is a leader in the Gambia's Truth, Reconciliation, and Reparations Commission that investigates human rights abuses committed by the previous government. And Dr. Jody Allen is the director of the Lemon Project, an organization dedicated to investigating the history of race and slavery at her partner site, William & Mary. Join them in this powerful discussion on historical injustices and the possible paths towards reconciliation. Then after the episode, you can learn more about the Mandela Washington Fellowship by visiting presidentialprecinct.org forward slash LMWF. So what's really interesting to me is the immense difference in time frame. One of you is talking about the 1700s while the other is talking about 1997. And to what extent do you think the time frame of each of your projects can help or hinder your work? I think that's a very important question because, I mean, I can imagine 1700s, that's many, many centuries ago. So, I mean, if, if I was going to apply that in our context, we've probably never been able to do the kind, that kind of work. I mean, but it's a good thing um, we started recognition and, and trying to um, I mean, make a record of what really happened. But in terms of, um, from our context, I think what we are faced with is, is a subject of how do we, more or less related to what she talked about, how do we trace some of these um, evidences or human rights violations substantially? Um, of, of what happened because for 22 years you, 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 you're you not going to find any evidence cast on stone for example and because of the time frame we highly rely on secondary evidence to do our work uh, because 22 years is it's a, it's a very very long time and I mean we're not just talking about um, for example just acknowledging and recording um, exactly um, incidences and how they, ha- they happen but we also want to give recommendations and also find out um, how um, the whereabouts of certain victims and where they are, and to do that, that involves a lot of work. In fact, that we are also involved in some exhumation processes of people who were <laughs> killed and um, they were buried since uh, 1996. So, I mean, all we could find were just bones and, and, and all of these things. So there was nothing important that we could find um, to a large extent that could help us in, in, our, in our work. So usually, um, the time frame is easier to work with when it's, it's closer. Because then you can have a perfect recollection of what happened and the, the incidences and evidence are quite dire for you to see and, and they are very tangible as well. Uh, but when the duration is quite far, then it's, it becomes a very laborious tax, um, highly difficult um, to, to establish um, an impartial and, and, and accurate record of what exactly happened. And I, I can say for, for, for certain that exactly one of the things that you are facing right now because of the time frame and how it's hindering your tax of, of recording um, 
at least all the names of individuals who worked in William and Mary, who labored in William and Mary in building the construction of William and Mary as well. Also, um, there is a caveat to this that tries to help us. Because, for example, it doesn't necessarily mean from 1970 to 1990, uh, 1994, there was no human rights violation that happened in the Gambia. Um, you know, but it, it, it varies in, in means and ways. And this is why the Act clearly stipulates that you're supposed to investigate between human rights violations or abuses that happened from um, July 1994 to January 2017. So you are limited in scope of the matters that you could investigate. But it didn't only do that. It also um, delineates the issues and types of violations that you're supposed to investigate. You know, so in a broader context, for example, um, you know, let's say you, I mean, all, all of the incidents that happened since the, the, the beginning of slavery that you want to do and how all of the people that left um, Africa that came to the United States, for example, that, and you want to record all of those incidences. So that is why I think that's make our work a little bit easier, perhaps um, less less than, than what they are engaging here because we are limited to a particular time frame on issues that we are supposed to look at and issues that we are supposed to investigate um, as part of our core mandate as an institution. Well, it's interesting because you're right. I mean, trying to figure out exactly what was happening in 1693 and, and, and forward. But I also think that um, Gambia, because of what you all are doing now, you won't, in 2097, you won't be necessarily looking at what we're looking back at now, trying to figure it out, because you you are at attacking the situation. You know, I think if in 1865, you know, when the Civil War ended, um, if there had been someone uh, who said um, we need to do something like a truth and reconciliation. Um, you know, there was more intent. Um, there, was a, there was a brief period during Reconstruction where it looked like African-Americans were going to get their due um, for their service to the country. But there was more, of, there was a greater intention, I think, and in, in particularly in the South, because they still needed the source of labor. You know, they, they, they were no longer enslaved, but they had to figure out ways to control that source of labor. That, and that's what they did. You have Jim Crow, convict leasing, all of these types of things. So as opposed to looking at ways to bring these, these four million newly freed people into the country as equals, there was more of a concentration of how do we keep them in control, keep them in their place, but also keep the very valuable labor that they're supplying um, to us. But in one of the um, things that I, when I think about, you know, how this country did not thoroughly really address um, its, its slavery, I, I think about um, an infection. And if, in, and if you don't, um, take you, you know you have an infection, you get an antibiotic, you take a part, you take some of it, you start to feel a little better, and then you stop taking it. Well, we know that that infection doesn't go away; it's going to bubble back up again, and it's probably going to be a little worse the next time. And that's one of the things. That's what I think has happened in this country. We've come together every now and then. We treat it a little bit. Then, you know, what's happening right now, for example, if there's finally some discussion a couple weeks ago about reparations in Congress, uh, but then you have people who say, well, 
President Obama was elected. How can you say there's still problems? You know, where if thinking people know that once President Obama was elected, you start to hear some of the things that you hadn't heard for decades, you know, and, and some of the racial slurs, some of the, and so we, we have to, I think, take the time now. And what Gambia is doing, I think, is so important because they're looking at this 22 years now, as opposed to, you know, let's, let's just keep moving forward and not think about this time in our history. Because what happens, there's a, I think there's also um, a cultural memory that's passed down. The children that are being born now, as they grow up, they won't know, they, won't, they will not have lived through the dictatorship, but they will hear about it. They will hear stories. They will hear stories of their, their, their ancestors. And so those stories will continue and continue. And eventually, down the road, somebody will say, we need to do something about this. And so now, even though you're still um, having some um, issues with, you know, getting full information from what happened, just, you know, 22 years ago, um, you're going to get more now than you'll get in 100 years, you know. And so addressing it now, I think, is really wise and really important. But I also think that... Um, it, it, you know, the, the, the questions about what to do about um, this history in, in, in the U.S., you know, and, and reparations and who, you know, is it a check? Is it, you know, scholarships? What should it look like, you know? And I don't think there are any really good answers, right, because we don't know. And how would you figure out who gets what dollar amount. You have to talk about it and think about it and my wise minds have to come together, but you have to be willing to have the conversation. And that's something we have not been willing to do. And if you saw any of those, you know, congressional hearings last week, you know, there's still people who, you know, don't want to hear it. Now part of it I think is fear. Because, as I'm saying, every institution in this country, that's my opinion, <laughs> that every institution in this country can somehow trace its roots back to slavery. Whether it actually owned it, it enslaved people, or it, it, paid, it processed the cotton, or it processed the sugar cane, or it processed the tobacco, or it built it. it raise the trees that were used to build slave ships, but there it's all there. And I think there's a real fear when you stop and think about that. That's the, that's the basis of the economic history of this country. There's a resistance to trying to figure it out, but it has to be figured out because in a hundred years, the same questions are going to keep coming up. Dr. Allen, you brought up reparations, and that's something, Abrima, you're actually working on at the Truth Reconciliation Reparations Commission. How do you think these issues of time and justice relate to the potential efficacy of reparations in your societies? It's a very important subject, um, the idea of reparations. I think, um, I mean, it's, it's not only the U.S., for example, where there's a huge debate on who gets what, um, where, and, and how, and what constitute um, reparations, for example. Gambia is one of the unique truth commissions that has um, reparations as part of its mandate. Um, you know, to put victims in a position where, um, had it not been the, the, the offense perpetrated on them, you know, they would have been in a particular position in their life better than where they were. 
um, I mean, the commission is supposed to grant um, reparations rather to victims in appropriate circum- circumstances where it felt it has received um, enough evidence to that regard. Um, and, and so we, we have victims that come and apply for, 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 for reparations in our context. Because, like I said, we have a lot of incidences where um, fathers were taken away from their kids. And their kids for the past 22 years were relegated to um, nothing, basically. And they had no access to school systems. You know, they, they, they were neglected of all these social benefits that they were going to have had it been their parents who were there. So in our own context, we felt, um, for example, that this was important to do. How do we restore um, the, the, the right to education of some of these kids? How do we make sure that we integrate them into our, our systems again? Um, so we have um, that means of monetary compensation, uh, material compensation to, to families in the Gambia. But we also have, um, I mean, satisfactory compensation where um, you see victims that come and acknowledge the fact that they have indeed committed some, some abuses and human rights violations against people and that um, they are willing to take um, responsibility for their actions and that they take the opportunity to appeal to the citizens' scenario of the country to say, we know what we did, you know, our actions were not justified at all and we want to seek for reconciliation with our people. So those kind of people sometimes we may apply for, for amnesty, for example. Those kind of individuals, again, uh, may not be considered for um, amnesty simply because of the fact that, you know, there is no guarantee for amnesty crimes that are considered um, crimes against humanity, for example. So, but victims that, for the most part, have suffered could apply for reparations. So it could be either in a form of um, commemoration, for example, where there was a student massacre in 2001 in my country, where about 13 number of students were killed. So usually every year in 2001, we conduct a national service where we recognize and celebrate these heroes um, that died in 2001 as a way of Remembering the fact that something bad happened, perpetuated by our state institutions. So these individuals, their families get some form of monetary compensation. And they are, I think they are also trying to build some form of monument to recognize the fact that these were victims of abuse. And um, I think also part of what they are trying to do is um, more or less to most of the people like in, in our context um, were victims. So some still suffer from some medical problems. So, I mean, there's some sort of um, system is created where from time to time, they go in for check-in, they go for overseas treatment and all of that, just to ensure that, I mean, all the people that deserve the right uh, remedies for the damages that the harm being meted to them have caused, they get some sort of reparations to us. But I think broadly, the question of reparation is a huge debate. And even back home, a lot of people would argue that um, it's highly selective uh, because of the fact that the commission, because part of the committees that we have, the truth commission, we have amnesty committee like I talked about, we have the reparations commission, we have the child sexual and um, gender-based violence committee, um, and we have other subcommittees as well. So they look at these cases and look at what threshold to build on where and how we should give reparations to victims. So which sometimes could be highly subjective and in a way very controversial, because who do you give it to? Um, because there is no level of human rights violations that is small in any way. You know, human rights violation is a human rights violation. Uh, but in reality, the fact is that some suffer more than other people as well. So it's, it's highly controversial. A lot of people argue over it. And uh, I mean, so I think the, the threshold being established by the commission is, is according to their own evidences that um, they're able to gather so far um, in terms of what they feel is right and justifiable and reasonable in granting reparations to victims of, of human rights violations in our country. 
to speak a bit more broadly about the U.S. model, the Gambia seems further along in many ways in their reconciliation process. It's not, do we do reparations, but how do we implement them effectively? It's not, do we have a conversation, as we are having a national dialogue right now. This national model of reconciliation has been seen in the Gambia, and South Africa after apartheid, and Colombia after their recent civil war ended. How do you think we can get there, and what do you think we have to do? Well, <laughs> I, well one, I think that um, healing really has to come before reconciliation, right? And healing is something that this country has not done. Um, there, again, as I was saying, if you go going back to the, the end of the Civil War, you know, there were, there were people who were trying to put into place um, some uh, changes that would, again, bring African-Americans into the country as a whole. Um, they lost out. You know, they, the, the winners were the people who wanted, as I was saying earlier, to maintain this, um, the place uh, where, of, of blacks in this country. And so there was never any real discussion because they were seen as inferior. So you don't come to the table with someone who you, you think, or they didn't come to the table anyway, with someone they thought was less than, less than human. And so that healing never took place. And you had, you know, year, decades of violence where, you know, uh, blacks, mostly black men, but black men, women, and children were lynched. Um, again, a way of uh, maintaining the, the place of blacks in society. Um, convict leasing, again, um, just you know, not, not having the basic right, the right to vote, the right, you know, you have a constitution that says you're a citizen, but then you cannot exercise any of the, the rights that a citizen can exercise. And so though the conversations around real healing never have never really taken place. So that's what I think we, we need to get to. Um, in this country. We need to have those um, conversations. And then we can look at, once everything is out on the table and everybody acknowledges, you know, again, as I was saying um, before, there's no reason for you to sit and feel guilty about what your ancestors did. But you do need to know what they did. And then, and the people, and you need to acknowledge. I think uh, for a lot of African Americans in this country, I think just an acknowledgement that you know what what that that blacks played a very important role in the establishment of this country, which for a lot of folks they don't, they won't acknowledge. Um, that that you know what you hear more today is those myths of the welfare mother and the lazy black and the, and the people who won't contribute as opposed to these people built this country you know they were at the core and so just acknowledging that would be a major step I think toward healing and then once you start to heal then you can really I think reconcile you know and come and come together and say yes as, as uh, Abraham said you know we we are we have these, our pasts are different. These, these things have happened in our past, but today, here we are, we're ready to move forward, you know, and to, and to make a positive change, you know, a, a, a lasting change. But until you have that conversation, 
Abrima, do you have any advice on how the U.S. could start a national dialogue? I, I think you made some very important points there. Um, before just getting to that, I just want to add, I think part of the problems that we have, aside time um, in the United States in terms of reparations, um, it's also because of, for example, the diversity of the United States of America. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine just a small small country um, with less than 2 million of its population, um, not highly diverse. Um, I mean... So it's it's also easier to work with those kind of people to bring the country together, um, to be reminded of the values that makes up makes us as people because I mean those are very important, um, and so we use those tenets and the tenets of our systems of traditional ruling um, to try to reconcile the country together. So at least that that is working for us because part of our mandate says that you know we, we may assist with religious leaders and traditional leaders and community leaders in our community. Um, to help us in terms of our healing and 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 reconciliation process, so th- th- that is that is very very significant, and I think that is working for us because from where we come from, um, religious leaders and opinion leaders are highly um, considered for their views and opinions, uh, so and they carry a lot of weight. So when they stand, they speak. People consider them um, either in a good way or bad way, but people follow their views because of the fact that their religion. They are religious leaders and they are traditional leaders. And that is what at least their culture makes, makes them to believe. So we use that to our advantage to make sure we work with opinion leaders um, to ensure that we, we, we strengthen healing and reconciliation process in our country. Um, that is one of the things that we are doing. But also another important thing is how do we make sure that uh, we augment or strengthen our current justice system um, in terms of um, dealing with issues, racial segregation, in terms of dealing with um, impunity, um, in terms of dealing with economic inequalities. And part of the ways of doing that is also to set up a truth commission to make recommendations to the state government or federal government, for example, on how they can institute projects or programs that will deal with um, inclusivity and not just um, a specific group of, of the society. So we are doing that as well. Um, you know, Because some of these things, it prevents reoccurrence of, of some of the incidences because we cannot go, we cannot move away from our past if we are unable to address it. We cannot pretend as if all is well when it is not. So we live with it, we have to deal with it. Otherwise, there is every likelihood that you know such incidents will continue coming up. So th- these are some of the things that we are doing in our country and I mean the national consensus and how we are also able to rely on the power of civil society in our country um, you know, to take ownership of the, pro- the project and programs. And what we want to do, for example, if at the end of a two-year period and we make recommendations to the government on certain institutional um, reforms, certain legal reforms, and also on uh, the fact that certain individuals are supposed to be prosecuted, this is why the role of civil society is very, very paramount because then we do not have the power to implement some of those recommendations because we are just a semi-government entity and we don't have the, the means and mechanisms to institute or to implement these policies. Then the role of civil society and the community agencies who since the beginning have taken ownership of the program um, or the project then have a crucial role to play. How do you hold the government to account to ensure that same government do not do exactly the same thing that happened in the past? So that is that is another important subject um, that we are trying to do at our own part, just to ensure that the two years of our service, the two, two years of our reconciliation process um, is not an effort in futility, but an, 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 a very historic process that is going to repair and damage our broken bones um, and systems and, and help a country to heal and reconcile, to, to move forward. Just a quick follow-up. I, I, I think that you, um, in your report, will be able to 
to use the U.S. as how not to do it, right? You know, because it's going to keep coming up. So, you know, you can say, you know, folks, we need to deal with this now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're more like a don't, you know, to date. Hopefully we'll work it out. So, so with what we've talked about today, the big question is, is true reconciliation possible? And if so, what does that look like? Important. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think reconciliation is possible. Um, as I said earlier, I think with with healing first, um, it, it, that has to, that has to come first. Um, you know, I think I, I'm reluctant to say this, but there is a body of there's a body of you know thought thinking right now. Um, in this country about making America great again. You may have heard that. Um, And I would argue that America was never as great as its documents. And because it never lived up to its founding um, ideologies fully. Um, And so moving forward, um, we need need the, the leaders of this country and the, the, the general population to understand that and to understand that we can be great if we fully acknowledge the, the foundations of the country and we try and we work really hard to live by that. We have to accept that, that certain things are built in to this, this, the, the, the country, the systemic racism. We have to understand that within our government, within some of our laws, within our within the punitive system, you know, um, of government, we have all of these people, many of whom are people of color, who are in prison um, because someone in the government decided that the war on drugs needed to focus on crack and not cocaine, um, and there all there's those types of um, system, uh, those types of realities that are built into our laws into everything we do but so we have to understand that but i think because they've become such a part of the country that people don't get it that certain things when put into place um, it will impact people in different ways so we we have to get to the very foundation of those those kinds of um, things when i think about for example, how the, the, the New Deal, you know, how certain aspects of, um, say, Social Security, in order for the New Deal to be passed by, uh, in the South, they had to exclude certain categories of people, farmers, domestics, who were mostly those people. They were, they were black people. So you didn't have that Social Security insurance as you aged. That's part of the system. Know, that's not, and, and you don't have to, the other thing that I think we have to understand in this country is that because something doesn't say um, bl- black people or Latino people specifically does not mean it's not impacting them differently. And so we got to get down to that very base. If we're going to be great ever, we have to get down to that baseline and work up. And so I think if we can get there, then reconciliation um, 
is possible because then, you know, and, and, and we can, because a lot of things that people will say, well, slavery is over. Why are you still talking about slavery? And there are a lot of people, I don't think they're so much angry about slavery. They're angry about the continuing system of injustice in this country. And slavery is at the base of it. You know, slavery has legacies, of course. And so acknowledging that, yes, slavery ended, but all of these little tentacles across time still impact people differently and negatively. And so we, we've got to get there. We've got to acknowledge and then. But I do think that there is such a thing as reconciliation and that it can happen. But it's going to be really hard work. Um, and it's going to take um, time and energy and real commitment, um, a level of understanding among not only the, the, the federal government, but the local government, the state government, um, and people uh, are going to have to maybe let their anger go in, in order to move forward, um, let their fear go, let that guilt go we talked about earlier. Um, so I do think it's possible. I don't, yeah, so I don't mean to laugh, I just, but it's, it's, it's not going to be easy. I mean, I think reconciliation, in my point of view, it's 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 possible, but it's a very Hakulian tax, and it also requires compromise. Um, it requires forfeiting certain um, grief or um, issues that we hold so dear um, about ourselves and our values and our, our processes and systems, how we want to live, where we want to go to. At this point, I think I'll just make reference to the South African Food Commission, for example, and how, despite all the controversy that was attached to their, their Food Commission, for example, and how certain individuals just went and they were not um, more or less prosecuted for certain offenses that they've committed. But one important factor that the South African Truth Commission is renowned for is the ideal of reconciliation and how they use a traditional figure, Desmond Tutu, how they use a figure and a person of authority from the local people, from the community, to sit there and speak to the people that what we need is reconciliation and not punitive justice. That as a country, the idea of reconciliation helps to build us. Because like I said initially, crimes, they, they, they operate in a pattern and system, and certain systems allow those crimes to happen. So directly or indirectly, all of us contribute to the creation of those crimes. You know, we are either... Um, overtly negligent of the fact that you're supposed to take responsibility to prevent that crime from happening or because we just, you know, were aiders and abettors in the commission of those crimes. So always, most of the time, you'll also realize, at least research has shown, that most of the people that go to prison as part of punitive justice process, they come out, they are very likely to commit the same crimes. So how do you ensure that these people do not go to jail, for example, and come out and commit the same crimes as part of our society? You know, but reconciliation kills too bad with one stone. It reconciles the country. And two, it also makes the offender to realize that indeed I've committed an offense, but how do this society help me to mold me to become a better person to be reintegrated into the society? So if anything, the South African Commission has helped to make uh, people that are engaged in personal justice process to understand that reconciliation should be a huge mantra for any country that want to emerge from its um, recent past 
from its troubling past that it's trying to grapple, grapple with. And so uh, in, in our context as well, because of what happened and how we're trying to deal with it in our own context and how it's relative to ours. Because, I mean, it's one thing to, for something to work in somewhere else, but it's a different thing for it to work in ours. So how do you make it work in your own system? And that is why we think our power is our traditional leaders. That is why the commission is representative of almost the diversity of our country in terms of tribal lines, in terms of religious lines, in terms of gender. Um, just to ensure everybody just have that view that the commission represents me and I'm part of it. And although some people were involved in some commission of heinous crimes, uh, we need to find out how um, we can hold them to account, but also how do we make sure that um, you know the society do not continue to mold people like them that emerge from us. So I think reconciliation in that regard, um, for me, it's it's possible. And I think it's it's the way forward for us, not just for, for the Gambia, not just for the United States, but for every other state that is involved in, in some sort of, um, I mean, violations or harm that happened to them in, in the past. Because, I mean, if you want to involve in punitive justice process all the time, even though sometimes it's relevant in certain con- contexts, the society is not going to move forward. You know, you find people that are aggrieved all the time and there are going to be tension and friction every now and then. So we need to reconcile. We need to cleanse our hearts and understand that humanity is about love. It's about passion. It's about compassion. It's about empathy, empathy, forgiveness. You know, it's about recognizing our differences and accepting that you know, by virtue of certain circumstances beyond our control, we did some incidences or actions that were not justifiable, and we wanted to take responsibility for our actions. So I think reconciliation is possible. Doctor Allen. Mr. Sonko, thank you very much for your discussion today. I recommend that everyone explores what the Lemon Project is doing here in Williamsburg. And if you'd like to learn more about what Abrima is doing in the Gambia, click the link below.